invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis again. And the chapter that we're in the midst of is chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. You might also want to be turning to the New Testament book of Romans. I'll read just a short portion of Romans chapter 8 as well before the preaching of the word. From Romans chapter 3, I'll begin reading at verse 17, and I'll read through verse 19 of Genesis chapter 3. This is the word of God. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten The tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. Out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Amen. Now I'll read from Romans chapter 8. I'll begin reading at verse 18. And I'll read through verse 24. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. In this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. It is because we are under the water of baptism, O Lord, we're a baptized body of the Lord Jesus Christ, and another has taken the curse for us. We can come to fearful passages like this one and seek to be edified by what it reveals to us about you, 
our world, and even our own miseries in it. We pray, our Father, that you will humble us. We also pray that you would stir us up in all the ways that is right and good for your spirit to do in our hearts, and we pray that you would keep our enemy at bay as we seek to listen to your voice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I do want us to be reminded that as we return to very weighty words that are words of judgment in Genesis 3, we are doing so in the wonderful, full sun of God's grace revealed in his plan of redemption long ago. Genesis 3.15, which we've already considered, gives that plan of redemption in a nutshell. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And that's a little gospel in a nutshell. That's actually the whole story of the Bible in a nutshell. And we have come to see in Genesis 3.15 that God is resolved to fight for us and to fight for the world that a great usurper has sought to take possession of. So as we, with all that awareness, go back to Genesis 3, we want to have greater insight into how to live in a fallen world. And we are armed with the encouragement that it's God's intention to enable us to live in this fallen world, even to the point of joining with our great king in crushing the head of the serpent. Now, we've looked at the words that he's given to our mother, Eve. We saw that God says to Eve, what your sin will lead to is a breaking down of two precious ordinances of God established at creation, marriage and motherhood. But we also saw how God, in grace, would double down on those institutions. He would preserve them. He would restore them by grace, and they would actually become critical to his advancing of his whole plan of redemption. Today, we're looking at his words to Adam. And we'll see that he takes aim in his word of judgment on Adam at another creation ordinance, as Adam would experience it. And that's of labor. God calling Adam, as he did at creation, to rule the earth and to take dominion. And just as we did with Eve, we'll break this down into two parts. We'll look at dominion and the curse this morning. And next week, we'll look at death under the curse. We have a lot of questions for our text this morning. That's how we'll structure our time. Five questions of our text and these words of God to Adam. The first is this. I'll put it this way. Why is God pronouncing judgment against dirt? There's no question in our minds why he would pronounce judgment against Satan, against even Adam and Eve. These were guilty sinners who had rebelled against their maker. But in verse 17, God doesn't say, cursed are you, Adam. He says, cursed is the ground. Because of you, he seems to be cursing, pronouncing judgment against something that didn't do anything, if you could say it that way, children. Inanimate objects are falling under 
the curse. By the way, the word ground here is what's been used from the very beginning of Genesis. Genesis 1, God said, he made everything that creeps on the ground. In Genesis 2, he said there was no man to work the ground. Genesis 2, again, he says he forms man of the dust of the ground. So this word encompasses the countryside, the fields where things are grown, the soil under our feet that's now mud today, of course, and all the rain. To be hyper-literal, we could actually say God is cursing the dirt. But we're going to see as we continue, the ground actually stands to represent all of the material world. It's actually all of creation. It's the whole earth that's falling under the curse of God in Genesis 3 as a result of Adam's sin. And friends, we are seeing even more the implications of what Adam and Eve have done. We saw last time that God has uh, brought upon not just Adam and Eve, but all their descendants a certain kind of pain. And now we're seeing that not only have they brought upon themselves and their rational human descendants pain, but they've also brought upon the whole world in which they live a kind of brokenness and pain. Just like childbirth in reference to what Eve would suffer was really just a a piece of the whole of the pain of parenting. That's what ground functions as in this curse. It's not that God is angry with dirt. But the world will be caused to suffer as a result of what Adam has done. God singles out one particular proof in the world of his curse, and it's famous. Thorns and thistles, it, the ground, shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. As you think about the thorns and the thistles being referenced in this curse, you can think of them as having a twofold role in the earth. They're a symbol of God's curse, and they're an implement of his curse. In other words, uh, when I say they're a symbol, they're putting something on display to all who see them that God is displeased with sin. It's similar to what God said about snakes. They would become slithering animals, and we would see in them a sign of God's wrath against Satan. God is telling Adam, you're going to see in the soil, rising up from the soil, the symbols of my anger against sin. But they're not just signs or symbols. They're actually implements by which man will be punished for sin. Just like the pain that evil feel in childbirth, God is telling Adam, you're not only going to see, but you're going to feel the effects of my hatred for sin. You saw that second reference then to pain, didn't you? There in the curse pronounced to Eve, and it's here in the curse pronounced to Adam. Kids, what's been your experience with thorns? You might 
be a very sheltered little boy or little girl and have never encountered a thorn bush, but I rather doubt that's true of any of the kids in this room. You know what a thorn can do, don't you? Thorns seem especially to be painful to people. I have a holly bush. I think it's doomed. It's not going to stand much longer. The family doesn't like it because it's in the wrong place and it keeps prickling us. But we notice that birds seem to have no problem with it. They just fly right in and out of the holly bush. I understand rabbits like uh, briar patches. They can find safety. I, I gather that mules actually eat thorns, but Thorns for us? Thorns for children? Well, they make us cry or groan. And thorns also here in this curse stand for something much, much bigger. They stand for everything in the natural world that brings pain or sickness or even eventually death. Kids, you know there are plants that will make you sick if you eat them, or will give you a rash if you touch them. There are bugs that will sting you, and sea creatures that will bite you, and there are certain animals that will attack you. And all of these things are things in the world that are sources of pain, and they're not just signs of God's displeasure with sin, but they are his instruments in punishing men for sin. The rod of God, punishing Adam and his descendants, has become as big as creation itself. So that's the answer to the question, why is God pronouncing judgment against the dirt? Second question is, what changes will this curse bring about for the world? And when I put the question that way, I'm coming at this text from a very traditional Position that Genesis 3.18 is speaking of something new that God has in store for the natural world. He says, thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. In other words, most of church history has understood God to be saying here, thorns were not part of the way I originally made the world. Thistles are not something I invented when everything in the world brought pleasure to man, but they are now arriving on the scene along with all the other painful or dangerous elements of the world. What this requires us to see is that a transformation of the natural world is in store for Adam and his descendants, and it will not be a transformation for the good speak of fallen mankind, but we also rightly speak of a fallen world, a fallen natural order. So John Calvin, for example, is representing that traditional view when he says, the earth will not be the same as it was before, producing perfect fruits. Or he declares that the earth would degenerate from its fertility and bring forth briars and noxious plants. Well, I've been calling up the traditional understanding of this passage. 
you can well imagine how those in the modern era have grappled with that and tried to reconcile that with the scientific workings of the natural order, and it becomes pretty hard to imagine and certainly impossible to explain how those have happened. And so there is a more modern understanding that takes a different view, that there is nothing in fact that is inherently different about the world as a result of Adam's sin. This modern view summed up in one commentator who says, nothing in the narrative suggests that the realm of nature has been altered in a fundamental way. So in that view, this text is not saying that thorns will now arrive on the scene, but that God had created thorns, all kinds of prickly and poisonous things, and apart from the fall, God would simply have never let them become sources of pain for us. There would have been thorns without the fall, but there would have, in God's province, never been wounds that came from the thorns. Now, there's a good point in this. Uh, It is to say that God's providential care of sinners is also something that changes after the fall. So, for example, if there were mountains before the fall, you wouldn't want to fall off of one. Uh, There were oceans, seas before the fall. You wouldn't want to drown in one. And God's providence before the fall would have kept his creature man from ever succumbing to any injury of what he'd made. That's a good point. But it still leaves us with this problem with God when he is creating a good world that was only a gift and only a source of pleasure for man have created the honey locust tree. I looked it up. It contains the largest of all thorns on the planet. They grow in clusters. The center thorn is three inches long. The side thorns are typically an inch. It often is ringed by these thorns. I wouldn't even want to walk through a forest that had that kind of tree. I wouldn't want to be anywhere near such a tree. It seems clear that there are things in this world that are actually now with the design of bringing pain. That more modern view doesn't explain Romans 8. That's why I read it just a moment ago. In Romans 8, the apostle seeing the natural order as having been affected by the fall of man, he uses these kinds of words to describe it. He says, uh, the creation has been subjected to futility. That's something that happened after it was created. And this was done by him who subjected it. That seems uh, to most of us like a clear reference to the curse. And he speaks of a time when the creation will be free from this bondage of corruption. So, after having pointed out to you a more modern interpretation, I want us to stick with the theology of Isaac Watts, who saw the coming of Christ as reason to say, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. That's really good theology. What Watts is saying is sin brought thorns into this world. Redemption will eventually rid the world of all thorns and 
all other inherent sources of pain in the earth. And we don't have to have, as brothers and sisters, we don't have to have a scientific explanation for how the natural order came to be what it is. It's a dangerous world, inherently painful in many ways, but that's not how it originally was. It's a result of the curse. That's an answer to the question, what changes will this curse bring about for the world? Question number three, how will this curse make Adam's calling in the world harder? Recall with me why God is pronouncing this particular judgment to Adam rather than Eve. Eve is going to suffer as well as Adam from these new sources of pain in the natural order, but God tells Adam of his curse upon the ground because it was uniquely Adam who was called to work the ground, to subdue the earth, to have dominion over it, and so this curse would have the most dramatic impact on Adam's life and Adam's sons. So remember, this is the second way that mankind was called to imitate their maker, not only to fill the earth, but to rule the earth. And that looked like doing what God had done, bringing order out of disorder and creating and putting to good use the natural world. And for much of human history, that's looked like primarily working the ground. What we mean when we speak of agrarian societies. We've said, we've said, we've seen that work itself is not a result of the curse. Uh, for that matter, long hours of work, not a result of the curse. Six days, Adam was to labor. And even work that was hard was not a result of the curse. He needed a Sabbath to rest. But that work before the fall would be the work that was so rewarding and satisfying and fulfilling and God-like until now. The whole enterprise of labor is pushing hard against so many obstacles. There are two dimensions that are referenced in the curse that is pronounced against Adam. Two dimensions of what labor will look like now. One is pain, the other is sweat. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. He's going to plow and plant and harvest, and this was what he was originally created to do, but he's going to encounter thorns. And in the process of removing thorns, he will be pained the counterpart to his wife's pain in childbirth. And we could add the pain is going to go further than just physical pain. There will be the pain of frustration and sense of failure that work now will occasion. And then there's sweat. Now the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. This raising of wheat, grinding it, baking bread, none of that's due to the curse, but the sweat is something new. This is labor that goes beyond hard. It goes to back-breaking, some would say soul-crushing labor. Labor that becomes all-consuming, overwhelming, 
and full of strength. These are the things, brothers and sisters, that in our world give work a bad name, aren't they? Think about undertaking a project. Think about undertaking a construction project. And think of the constant threat of uh, workplace injury. I thought of this as I watched the men on the rafters and they were all uh, tied in. And I thought, yeah, that's so wise. It's so now dangerous to build. The miscalculations that can occur in the workplace that jeopardize profits. This hangs over those who build, the disproportion uh, between the labor and the reward that so often sets in. These are the things that plague us in a fallen world, especially those who are providers for their homes. Genesis 4, God is speaking to Cain, but he elaborates on this word to Adam. He says to Cain, when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. That's how this curse will make Adam's calling in the world harder. Fourth question. What should we learn from the misery of this curse throughout history? I'm moving now into questions that I trust will have practical application for our lives. Now that we understand what's happening in our text. A couple weeks ago, I invited you to stand back for a moment and just think, and as you do so, tremble at what God's judgment has brought, the world of woe that women have felt as a result of God turning childbirth into a great source of pain, even threat to life. Well, now I invite you to consider the same, the world of woe that men in particular have had to suffer throughout history as a result of this curse. If you're a student of history at all, you know the vast majority of humans have lived hand to mouth. They've spent most of their waking hours working in order to survive. In the case of many, their working days would be considered by us in our modern notions as slavery of a kind. They were part of families, for example, who were dependent upon the wealthy in their community and lived off of their land. And as serfs, they functioned essentially as slaves. Or they were born to those lower castes of society that were relegated the most menial of jobs. And then literal slaves, of course, so much of mankind has existed in this state. And even if none of those things were true, most of mankind in the history of the world has had little choice about what they would do in their labor, and their life would include precious little than what they had to do apart from choice. There's so much that's different and better with modernization post-industrial, but it's also brought its own horrors, has it not? A new kind of drudgery mindless factory job. Some would say Ecclesiastes is an exposition of the curse in Genesis chapter 3, where the wise man says, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun, and 
For all his days are full of sorrow. His work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Why do men live on average worldwide seven years less than women? There's various theories for that. It's chromosomes, it's hormones, it's brain development. Could I also suggest it's that they bear primarily the dangers and the stresses that come from working the ground. Stress is a killer. Even as childbirth can be. This part of being a man is not good. I said, no one envies a woman in the labor of childbirth. No one envies a man in the labor of what we call a dead-end job. Why is the world this way? It needs to be clear in your minds, especially my brothers. It's because he hates sin. I'm going to give a word of encouragement to all of us, especially the men, in just a moment. I have a harder word for my brothers just now. The problem with our complaining as men about all of this, as we love to do in our society, is that it's nothing more than what you and I deserve as the sons of Adam. That's the problem with our complaining. Our culture is full of male whining about the trials of the workplace as if there was some cosmic injustice about our bad boss or low salary or meaningless work. The biblical reality is that all this pain is an expression of cosmic justice in the world. Brothers, I think the notion can enter into our minds Even as good men, I'm entitled to love my job, aren't I? If my job isn't personally fulfilling, there's got to be a better one out there. If my job doesn't fit my unique gifts and ambitions, I should quit and find it. This should at least seem incredibly naive to us in light of the weighty things we're reading in Genesis chapter 3. Here's how it is, brothers. Adam was endowed by God with glory. and He and his sons were destined to be the world's master gardeners and craftsmen and engineers and architects and artists and the rest. But when Adam reached for God's glory as he reached for the forbidden fruit, God brought his rod down on Adam's glory. Brothers, no matter what we do for a living, we'll do it with a limp. Like Jacob leaving the encounter with the angel who just touched him on that thigh of his. He walked with a limp for the rest of his life. All of us men will do whatever we do for a living with a limp. It will bring us pain. And it's nothing more than what we as sinners, sons of Adam, deserve. Matthew Henry reminds us that our grumbling 
has this perverse way of only heightening the curse. He says, uneasiness and weariness with labor are our just punishment, which we must patiently submit to and not complain of since they are less than our iniquity deserves. He goes on to say, let us not by inordinate care make our punishment heavier than God has made it. Brothers, let's repent of our self-pity and our complaining. The godly man goes off to work with this baseline realization. Every day, as a sinner, I have no claim on happiness and fulfillment in my work. Whatever I do, receive of happiness and fulfillment in my work is pure grace of God. It's not my right. Brothers, I encourage you to think that part of your calling as a man to suffer that pain in manly ways. And in fact, to do your best to shield the ones you love from that pain. That's the calling of a man working under the curse. That's an answer to the question, what should we learn from the misery of this curse throughout history? Last question. What should we remember about the dominion mandate carried out under the curse. This is all about your encouragement. Three things I want us to remember. First of all, remember, brothers and sisters, that even in judgment, God preserves for man a measure of dominion glory. This reminds you for all the colossal mismanagement that Adam has been guilty of after the sin and after the judgment, guess who's still sitting? In the chair of management. Adam. He's still on the job. He's still endowed with the dignity of being the ruler that the world, of the world that God has made. So this is the inherent dignity we could say glory, of all of our worldly callings. All of you, male and female, you're like Adam, who was created and fitted for a task, and this is very much a part of the reason that you are here. I love asking men who I'm meeting for the first time, what do you do? And the diversity of the answers is glorious. God has, in so many ways, gifted us and equipped us for work in this world. And I have reminded you before from this pulpit, in light of how Genesis 1 begins, God at work in the world. You're never so like God as when you are at work, brothers and sisters. Second reminder, one of the blessings of the covenant is God's gifts of support. And success in our labors. He will undertake for his people. The rest of the Bible makes abundantly clear. And he will aid them in this, we could call it, the fight of the thorns. The wisdom literature of the Bible is full of this. Psalm 90, the prayer. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. And establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. That's something God does. 
in our daily labors. Proverbs 16, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. And even Ecclesiastes, it finally resolves the tension, the futility of labor and says, I perceive that there's nothing better for us than to be joyful, to do good as long as we live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. That is God's gift to man. Dustin's going to preach from Deuteronomy 28 this evening. Just listen for this word and the blessings of God to his people. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground. Those two things. Those two things. The very things where the curse has fallen on Eve and then on Adam. Adam will say more or less I steal his thunder. Plan of redemption. It's all about God delivering his elect ultimately from all the miseries of the curse. So my brothers, especially, as you go into battle against the thorns, the battle itself is glorious now. That leads me to my third reminder. And that is this, our taking dominion in a fallen world is part of the coming of the kingdom of God. So Genesis 3.15 had announced God's intentions to fight for this world that Satan had usurped and involved glory for women. The seed of the woman would crush Satan. The glory of man in taking dominion in the earth is also part of the coming of the kingdom and that is in bringing about God's will on the earth as it is in heaven. I remind you that unlike marriage and the raising of children, what you might call the fruitfulness mandate, the dominion mandate is going to continue in the new heaven and the new earth. We're going to have to have the bread of our feasts gotten from somewhere. We're going to have to have some way of sourcing all the banqueting that we're going to do in the new heavens and the new earth. That means is that everything that we're doing now is preparing us for the time that's coming. So it's not just that you're doing kingdom work when you talk to your kids about Jesus. You're doing, your, you're doing kingdom work when you organize your kitchen. When you revamp the assembly line at the factory. And as a matter of fact, there are certain respects in which that kind of labor is even more God-like. How so? Jesus says in John 5, my father is working till now and I am working. What kind of work is he doing? It's not creation work. It's work of providence and work of redemption. It's the work of restoring men and ultimately the earth to its perfection. And what a privilege it is for us to join him in that work. I've told, actually I've seen it. Someone has invented thornless roses. Glory in that. Applying man's ingenuity to reversing the curse. Randy Alcorn in his book on heaven is talking about where all this is going to end up. And he says, God will lift the curse 
not only morally, in terms of sin, and psychologically, in terms of sorrows, but also physically, in terms of thorns in the ground. How far does Christ's redemptive work extend? Far as the curse is found. Redemption failed to reach the farthest boundaries of the curse, it would be incomplete. The God who rules the world with truth and grace won't be satisfied until every sin, every sorrow, every thorn is reckoned with. Brothers and sisters, here's how I'll leave you this imagery of pain and sweat and thorns and the blood they bring. I'll leave you with a poignant picture. I get it from the church fathers. You know they had an eye for imagery in the Bible. They saw significance in some of the smallest details. They asked questions like this one. Bear with our fathers as I try to capture the question they ask. If it's true that immediately after the fall, God set out to do battle with Satan for this world. And that would include undoing the material effects of this world, the thorns that sin has brought. And if that battle would culminate in God taking to himself the flesh of a man and enduring in his body effects of the curse, blood, sweat, and tears, then isn't it significant, our fathers would ask, God's poetic providence, his son, our Lord and King, would do battle against the curse there at the cross, wearing a crown of thorns. Placed there, of course, by the derision of his enemies. Placed there, could it also be, by a God whose poetic providence wanted a picture our Savior, suffering with us the blood of the thorns of this fallen world and suffering on our behalf what lies behind the thorns, the curse of God that we deserve. I actually don't think that's too much of a stretch. I can't think of the thorns of Genesis 3 without thinking the thorns on my Savior's head his resolve to take to himself on the cross the curse in all its dimensions so that one day we'd have only roses and no thorns in the day when there would no longer be anything a curse. Revelation 22. Amen. Let's pray together. So, our God, we groan in some ways even more than the world does, for we can see the pain and suffer in this fallen world, its true source, your justice, your wrath against sin, of which we have a taste still in this fallen world. We groan even more knowingly 
we suffer even more poignantly those who have no God. All the more then we are grateful that you have restored to us dignity, not only to do what Adam was created to do, but to do what you've set out to do, to join you in taking our godlike gifts and seeking to pull the thorns. Our Father, we ask you for more grace this week in these battles of the thorns that we wage. And we thank you that they're just thorns now. There's no anger to us personally, judicially, and eternally. For our Savior has borne all that. And for this we give you thanks. We thank you for his crown of thorns that has taken our curse. Praise be to God. We ask this, we pray this in Jesus' name.